and welcome along to the Independent Living Group Support Podcast. Each episode, we will take a deep dive into a subject that you, our members, are asking us about. Our aim, as always, is to share the best practice and make employment law accessible and understandable to everyone. On this episode, we have a question and answer session hosted by our colleagues Rachel and David. The subject they are all discussing is the thing that everyone's been talking about, and that is, of course, the pandemic. Specifically, Rachel and David discuss the vaccines, furlough, and how and when to get your PAs back to work. We really hope that you like this first episode. Please comment, like, and share. And now onto the show. And this is taken from a Q&A session from a webinar just recently, and we are dipping in just as we're starting to talk about furlough and the job retention scheme. Enjoy. Yes. Yeah, so what happened? with the job retention scheme was we had some guidance initially that said um, you cannot use the job retention scheme if you are publicly funded. Now, for most of you, that's, um, that that was a, a quite a clear indicator that, um, you know, a direct payment employer therefore wouldn't be able to uh, access the scheme because direct payments are publicly funded. Um, and it's a reasonable expectation, a reasonable interpretation, though Rachel and I had lots of conversations at the time about can this be right? Does this this doesn't seem right? And of course, um, it wasn't as straightforward as that. I think that um, publicly funded, um, in most cases, yes. If you have the money there and your your employees are not coming to work, use that money to pay them while they're on furlough. Don't access the scheme. Was the intention? What we were concerned about quite quickly was what about those cases of the PA is shielding. The service user, direct payment, individual employer still needs that money to, to pay for somebody to support them, whether that's two of their other PAs, one of them has to shield. What happens to one who's shielding? They're not coming to work purely because of the pandemic. The money, the public money is being used up here to provide the care and support. What happens? And, and we were able to clarify, we were part of some national networks with TLAP and others to, to really push that and and we, we kind of we, we were able to get involved um, and make sure that those examples were included in the guidance and I still have to point people even now to the guidance the direct payment recipients job retention scheme guidance which we will include when we send out uh, follow-up information today if you haven't seen it uh, or if you are you know if you are looking at whether or not the job retention scheme applies it's got case studies in there and it does make it very, very clear that job retention scheme can, in some cases, apply. I know we're kind of the horses already bolted. Here we are. And in many cases, funding bodies were able to just pay for that wage anyway. Um, however, where there's a top up required, certainly in the second lockdown, what we did see was probably uh, a little bit more scrutiny on how much double funding was likely to be uh, agreed by local authorities. So in a, in a way, that, that there was a requirement to reiterate that in some circumstances, the job retention scheme is available. And certainly there are lots, countless examples of direct payment employers who have successfully accessed the scheme. So um, that's just a reminder about that. So we had SSP, we had the shielding, we had furlough, job retention scheme. And then uh, it was funny because I was looking back over some of the uh, notes we'd made and meetings we'd had throughout July and August. Now, I don't know whether there will ever be a time in my professional life or any of ours where so much stuff has happened so quickly. It's been so concentrated. And it's not until you start to look back over perhaps emails or presentations 
And you think, yeah, we were there. You know, four months ago, we were saying it's the end of lockdown. It's this is what's happened. This is the roadmap out. This is what will happen come September. Schools will be back. Everything will be back to normal. And of course, it hasn't worked that way. So we've had to remain quite mobile on our feet. In that time, what we were looking at, what the big kind of during the summer, I guess a big part of what we were talking about was COVID secure workplaces. Um, We had the terminology, the key and critical, now critical workers, but effectively the same thing. You know, the whole track and trace system. So we were we were coming to terms with a society in which you know not you know where we were social distancing and where we were following guidance outside of the workplace we became aware and we we understood that in order to continue working in some form or another even for key and critical workers there had to be a nod towards keeping the workplace safe in this climate so and that and our individual employers were no different and that meant specific risk assessments that meant work places that that took into account the risk of uh, spreading uh, COVID nineteen, uh, and that and that's had it had its had its impact. And I think that's one of the things we want to talk about today is what is the longer um, impact of that. What what how does that play out in the next six months, twelve months, and possibly longer? What's what what is the what is the impact of that moving forward? So that's the kind of quick whistle stop history of it. And I appreciate you know that is just me waffling but I did warn you for those who've been from the start that today's a little bit about that but that's what Rachel and I do is discuss these matters and waffle about them so I hope it's of use for you to join us um, and talk to us about it all so moving on to the present what where are we now what's been happening over the last month or so so we've had vaccinations for PAs so that was obviously the whole the whole introduction of vaccines in the first place and then the clarification that social care frontline social care workers were eligible and should be vaccinated and then of course the whole issue should a PA is a PA recognized appropriately to be included in that cohort and there's been so much work going on in the background to make sure that they were and for the most part that's that's happening and there has been PAs are being vaccinated have been vaccinated um, I appreciate it's been a bit of a hate phrase a bit of a postcode lottery but on the whole by now I think there's people identifying in local authorities there are routes to find out uh, to um, to get to make that happen for you to, to, to get PAs on vaccinated if they haven't been already and it's been a lot of work there's a really good document certainly that covers in England that the LGA created that's got a very good breakdown of uh, lists of contacts within local authorities and lots of links and guidance. So we'll include that today in case anyone is still having problems accessing vaccinations in their area. We also, of course, as on the back of the vaccination issue, had an advice note that we put together. Again, if you did see the webinar, be be uh, human or in control webinar. We, we put the advice note together and it kind of led to our involvement in that because we were asked the question that what happens if my PA doesn't want the vaccine and I want them to have the vaccine? It's now quite common. Anyone working in, in and around direct payments would probably have asked this question, had to discuss and contend with this issue. And we were able to issue an advice note quite quickly. And, and I would add, we actually amended the advice note on the back of some of the some of the different responses and reactions we were getting to that from two ends of the spectrum, really. It's very, very interesting to see the reactions we had to that. Effectively, we were saying you cannot enforce vaccinations. Be be mindful of enforcing vaccinations. Um, You cannot mandate it. Uh, and you have to be wary of that. And we had, again, we had lots of support for that position, but we had lots of counter views to that position that was very interesting. We, we, we released a second version of that document to take just to make it clear that we understood and respected both sides of, of the coin. But we do 
we are about, you know, our area is about supporting employers. And we have to be very careful about ensuring that the support we provide is is reasoned and uh, in accordance with employment legislation. So um, not always an easy um, an easy kind of path to tread, but we will include our advice note on vaccinations and can you insist your PA has the vaccine with all the information after today if you haven't seen it already. So that's, we have vaccinations still going on. We have now in England regular COVID testing for PAs. So an ability to order four test kits every 28 days for PAs. That's, you know, fantastic. And that's happening now. So PAs are being regularly tested. So this is the kind of where we're at. And then we have the end of shielding, the clinic extremely vulnerable on the horizon. So the end of April is the current date when shielding, certainly in England and Wales, is set to end. And we have this roadmap out of lockdown. And we have, we have you know, by mid-June, mid to, mid to late June, in theory, whisper it, some kind of new normal. So what does that mean for our employer group? Where, where does that leave us? There's a few questions, isn't there? So we have, we've recently had lots of questions about holiday uh, rollover of annual leave for people who are unable to take leave during uh, the pandemic. So we've got a new advice note on that that we'll include today. But if there are any questions, absolutely do ask them. But I guess that's a quick whistle stop again through the history where we've been very recently. But the roadmap out of lockdown, um, Rachel, to give my voice a, a break, you've been doing some thinking on what the future holds. Would you mind maybe just yeah, saying a few words about that and your thoughts? I think when we're looking now to the future, we are thinking about whether shield when shielding is coming to an end. So we understand that that's um, certainly in England, we're looking at the end of April 2012. That's going to have an impact on either people who were receiving support. They have been shielding. They perhaps have been getting care and support from their families rather than it being the PA. So perhaps we've had PAs often on an arranged furlough or we've had PAs who themselves have actually been furloughed as well because they have been in the in the CEV category. They have been shielding. So we might now be looking to return turn them into work. So we've got some challenges, really, when we think about um, this return from shielding. Certainly when we're bringing PAs in, it might be that we haven't seen them for a year and we are genuinely coming across cases where that, that is absolutely happening, that the PAs have not been there for 12 months. But the employment has been retained during that time. So how do we go about doing that is going to be a really important question to so many of our policyholders. And I think the answer to that is just with extreme care and and consideration. And this is very, very important. One of the things that we made clear when we've talked about enforcing a mandated vaccination program, that may well have been a valid, you know, a kind of a really key hot topic for employers who have had PAs active and already in the workplace. But now we're talking about bringing in employees who perhaps are themselves in the CEB category. We might be wanting to enforce the same rules against them. So we need to be a little bit careful as to how we go about doing that. It's probably not going to come as a great shock to anybody to hear that one of the concerns from lawyers about an enforcement and mandated vaccination programme 
this idea that we may well be discriminating against somebody. If an individual is concerned about having the vaccination based on the grounds of a protected characteristic, so initially we had pregnancy, although I think my understanding is that they have actually started to say that pregnant ladies can have the vaccines, but nevertheless, it might still be a concern for some. We know that people may have objections on religious grounds. And of course, we do have some individuals who believe that because of their own disability, that they themselves actually are going to get health concerns because of the vaccination. We have to be mindful of that. And I think while so far, if we've got people and individuals in work carrying on their care and support, perhaps there's been less of a, of a worry on those lines. I'm expecting that we'll get more calls where we say, actually, this, the PA does not want to have the vaccination because they themselves have a disability. And so we've got to be really, really very careful as to how we approach that. So in the guidance that you referred to earlier, David, we had actually, this is the direct payment employers guide that's on the government website. We gave a bit of a steer as to to go about having the conversations with the PAs to bring them back into work. Now, of course, one of the primary concerns that any employer is going to be facing at this time is health and safety. We're going to be thinking not only health and safety protecting the interests of the service user, but also health and safety protecting other employees. I've had a number of calls from people where actually they're less concerned about the services because they themselves have already been vaccinated and actually they feel a bit more secure and strong. But then they've got two, let's say two employees who are critically, extremely vulnerable and two other employees are saying we don't want the vaccination. So an employer is going to not only be concerned about themselves and their own household, but they're going to be concerned about their staff as well. So we've got to be thinking the broader the broader workplace, health and safety, what do we do? Now, we know risk assessments. Risk assessments is something that we have talked about for so long. And I would think most employers are quite used to that. But now we're thinking, well, this is risk assessments with a particular purpose. This is risk assessments taken into account an infectious disease that is a genuine, um, a genuine risk, but also perhaps we have little knowledge of. We don't necessarily know that we have absolutely sound um, mechanisms to, to keep, um, keep everybody safe. So lots of employees will already have some system of a COVID secure work, um, working system in place. They'll be using PPE. Now we'll be thinking, well, what do we do in terms of bringing that vaccination mandated program into the workplace? And particularly um, careful with these individuals who were coming back from shielding themselves. So really, my first piece of advice has to be you need to discuss it. You need to discuss it. You need to talk it through with the employee and have a true proper understanding as to what their concerns are. We don't want to be diving too deep at this early stage. I mean, in theory, it might be possible for us to request um, medical reports and the likes to see if we can understand the risk. I would hope that that would be a last resort. Initially, we need to be having good communication with the employee. We need to discuss it. We need to actually recognise their concerns and not just pass that off as, as if it's not something to be worried about. We've got to remember, of course, that any employees who fall under the critically extremely vulnerable category are also likely to be able to show that they have a disability under the Equality Act 2010. And that being the case, the employer has to make reasonable adjustments. So surely it is a reasonable adjustment to have a really good conversation with the employee to find out what their concerns are 
uh, what their risks are, what they're willing to do. Some some PAs may be absolutely fine to use additional PPE, maybe even adjustments to their work. It might be that you can actually have them working in such a way where they're not necessarily in close contact with anybody else in the workplace who may be particularly vulnerable. There are changes that could be made, whatever the outcome of these discussions, it's important to put in place measures. I would advise anybody to make sure that this is all recorded as well. So not just a bit of a chat, because so often that is the case. It's, well, I know I know she's going to be difficult because she's just not happy. She's told me she's not happy. And this has been a, a bit of a chat or maybe something that they posted on social media. What we're talking about is take it to the next step. Have a proper one-to-one. Have a proper sit-down. You can do it over video if you need to. But really, really talk it through properly and record it. It's important that an employer takes those steps. And then, of course, I'm always going to say this, take advice. Once you've gathered that information, once you really have a thorough understanding of what any concerns might be, give us a call and take advice on a case-by-case basis. um, And then we'll look to, to take you through and see what can be done about that particular PA. Now then, the other thing that kind of I've been musing on, I suppose, is that we have a, we also have a situation where the shielding is going to be ending at the end of April. But the job retention scheme has been confirmed to be continuing until the end of September. Now, just because shielding ends doesn't necessarily mean that employers are going to feel like, yay, great, we're in a rush to get everybody back into the workplace. You know, people are still going to feel fearful about mixing. And I think that's a very valid concern. So it it would be interesting, actually, to get some feedback as to how different funding bodies are going to tackle this, particularly where funding bodies haven't utilised the job retention scheme, but it is still available. Is there going to be a turnaround? So from funding bodies who perhaps have already been paying out 100% to have an employee who's shielding, are they going to get to a point where actually we'll come the end of April, shielding is over now, we're not willing to pay for them to be away from work any longer, but we're still going to have a transition period where service users are still going to be very genuinely fearful and not want them to return into work until such time as they feel a bit more settled that society has reduced the numbers of COVID that's spreading. So I'd be really interested to know, and, and I'm sure we will kind of get a feel for this as time goes by, as to how funding bodies are going to approach it. Are they going to start saying, well, actually, we're not going to cover these sorts of costs from a distance? Are they going to say, well, actually, let's start to tap into the job retention scheme instead? That's going to be a really interesting thing to keep um, to keep a check on, see how things go. Um, what I'm also concerned about, and I think actually in some ways, coronavirus has flagged something that perhaps we should already be advising on, something that perhaps employers should already consider. And that is that when you have a service user who's got particular vulnerabilities, that they're particularly vulnerable to um, any kind of infectious disease transmission, then maybe we should actually be encouraging them to always have an infectious diseases policy. And that's something that will 
already set in stone the rules of the workplace. So something along the lines of um, what happens in, in regards to a vaccination programme. Do we require you to do testing? How long, in particular to, to coronavirus, how long are we going to expect that you take these extreme precautions? Some individuals are expecting their PAs really not to mix an awful lot in society. And I think that's reasonable under the circumstances. How long does that carry on? When the UK is starting to relax, let's say mid-June, if we get there and, and everybody is back to normal, then does that put the employer at a reduced risk or are they still going to have their concerns moving forward for months thereafter? So if the employer takes the opportunity to think through what is the policy that I need to have in my workplace? What are my expectations for my staff? This is an opportunity for them to express it an opportunity to say, look, these are my workplace rules and whatever is going on in the community, that's understood, but this is what's relevant to me here and now. Um, you'll set timeframes for how long you expect individuals to have to undertake these kind of uh, testing programs and so on. But very, very importantly, what it will also do is it will tackle data protection controls. We have to remember that any information about an individual on a, a medical intervention that they've had, on um, the testing that they've gone through, this is all extremely sensitive data and the employer has to keep that data under check. They have to make sure that they're only retaining it for as long as they need to, that they're handling it well, they're not sharing it, that it's not information they're spreading to all of the other staff. And this can be a bit of a problem when you've got those employers who, like the example I gave, two employees who are CEV, two employees who aren't. It might be that this is the sort of thing that comes up in conversation all the time. Oh, well, you know, yes, yeah, she's she's not liking it. She doesn't want to be having a vaccine and, and sharing information that actually is a genuine, genuinely sensitive issue. We have to be respectful of how we tackle any information about somebody's wishes and beliefs that relates to their sensitive data. So what we would include in one of these policies is a really rigorous data protection policy that explains how the employer is going to uh, keep individuals safe and not let them feel exposed as far as their private and personal data is concerned. So that really is, I think, something that I'm going to strongly advocate right now. This is something that we can put in place now, something that will help the employer, a bit like our, our government's roadmap to the way out of coronavirus, our employers can do a similar thing, think through their own policies, get it set in stone, issue it across the uh, workforce, along with carrying out the risk assessments. And hopefully that will give them a bit of a roadmap out of coronavirus risks and transmissions as well. And of course, if we refer to it simply an infectious diseases policy, it doesn't just have to deal with coronavirus. If we, when we're talking about people who are very vulnerable themselves, any kind of a disease is important. So what we'll do even with something like the colds or flus and, and, and the typical um, illnesses that get spread around, we can include that within this policy. If you have even so much as a sniffle, 
please make sure you contact me immediately. We give the employer the right to make decisions as to how then that impacts. Does that give the opportunity a chance to say, um, don't come into work then today? Let the employer take controls and these policies will help them to do that. Rachel, that was brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, we've had a couple of questions, um, which I think might be, let's, let's, let's start answering some of those, shall we? Because I think I've written down, you know, the infectious disease policy, that's something we'll be drafting then. That's something we'll have available for yes, all the policy Yeah, yeah. I'd like to make sure that it was it, it gets left kind of flexible so an employer takes an opportunity to think it through themselves. But what I'm going to do with it is make it a little bit more of a prompt, maybe put in some suggested wording and then they select the bit that's most relevant to them or, you know, things that can be tweaked. We've got to recognise that this isn't just a typical policy that it's one size fits all, but at least we can get something on paper, something as a bit of a guide, as a prompt that then is genuinely useful. And of course, any employer who needs further guidance on it can give the helpline a call. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think going just very, very briefly, going back to your earlier point about shielding the, the time frame, the roadmap, the end of furlough, the end of September, and actually, you know, whether or not there is a synergy between funding bodies and those particular roadmaps will be interesting to map. I'm, I think in some cases, I mean, I can think we had a Southwest DP forum this week and one of the local authorities there was saying, you know, we've got PAs who just aren't coming in. And I think there's there are employers who just don't want them in. And actually, I don't think that's necessarily tied to shielding. It's just a kind of sense, a, a kind of perception of risk in that household. It's, you know, I, why, if I can manage. And I think alongside whether, I think there are, the, the end of shielding and then the end of furlough are very strong indicators and things that local authorities will inevitably, you know, link their policies and decisions to. But I think it's that it's the in between as well. I think it's those cases where families have been managing. What what will the advice be? I think again, it's case by case a lot of the time, isn't it? But it's about getting in touch with you, isn't it? It's about speaking to ILG support. If there are policies of ours, I should say, for the interest of balance, if they're insured elsewhere, speaking to their legal advice. But making sure people seek advice, you know, get get the advice yeah. in about how they manage that. Because in the end, I suppose if we think of the reason for shielding to prevent transmission to protect the most vulnerable, if you think the reason for the job retention scheme and furlough, which is to, you know, keep people in their jobs, as those things wind down, you know, there is just less justification for PAs not going into work. And, and we appreciate, while it has to be respected, that people will have views and will have their own position on it. It's about gently giving people the time, the conversation, space to seek advice and follow it. And that's that's the trick, isn't it? Easier said than done, I think, in a lot of cases, but we're certainly yeah. ready for it. And we know it's it's coming. And this is all based on the assumption that, of course, that the roadmap stays in place and we don't have some other blips along the way, which I, I'm sure we won't. I'm going to stay positive, but we have been here before. So a couple of questions we've had, um, which a first one from Jenny Hurst. So hi, Jenny. Um, and it's, I think, a question about layoff, actually. If a person has to go into hospital and there's nothing in the contract about layoff, does the employer still have to pay the full wage? And if so, are the council or funding body still responsible for paying the full DP for the whole time? I mean, my, my quick, before I pass on to you, Rachel, my sort of thoughts on that would be, if there isn't a layoff clause, my understanding is ultimately the PA's job continues. They are paid they're, they're, if they're contracted to pay to, to perform regular hours um, and there's no layoff clause. And although you can negotiate one, it's more difficult. They're going to be it's entitled to be continue to be paid until such time as you you wrap up that contract, and that's the point of a layoff clause is to enable you to pay somebody a, a reduced 
a reduced pay or layoff of no pay or statutory guaranteed pay. Um, do you have any reflections on that? Would you be able to kind of... Uh... I think you're absolutely right, David. Yes. I mean, what we've got to remember, of course, is that when we agree a contract at the beginning of the employment, it has, it's been an agreement. We've got evidence of an express agreement between the employer and the employee. So when that occasion occurs, we can simply apply that clause because it's already agreed. So um, it, it is important, I would say, to have it, a layoff clause. And of course, we're referring to PAs who have a right to ongoing work, who have a guarantee. We're not talking about casual workers. We are not talking about zero hours workers where we're not under an obligation to offer them work anyway. But assuming that we're talking about the permanent employee, there's already been an agreement. Now, the way certainly we draft a layoff clause is that it is a layoff, no work, no pay. Some funding bodies do build in a bit of a retainer payment. That's fine. But but essentially what we're doing is we're saying, well, we're taking your contractual position and we're, we're stripping that out. We're not we're not going to allow you that right anymore. So it has to be by agreement, because if it's not by agreement, then it's going to be a breach of contract if you don't pay them wages, along with an awful lo- unlawful deduction from wages claim could follow as well, uh, as well as any loss that might arise because of the um the breach of the contract itself so in a contract that's already agreed at the very beginning brilliant we can apply it no problem really in very much the same way as this this furlough arrangement with the job retention scheme actually what's happened there is that there's still been an agreement with the worker to reduce their salary by 80% or no sorry by 20% down to 80% so it's it's had to be agreed outside of the terms and conditions of the contract so you're absolutely right in that yes you can agree it with the worker and you might have a worker who's absolutely happy with it they can get work elsewhere for a time they might be fine with it so in answer to the question it's worth asking the worker first to see if you can get an agreed period of layoff but if not then yes you will have to continue to pay 100% of the wage. Brilliant. Thanks, Rachel. And I think the probably knowing um, the, the kind of essence of the question, the fact that we're, we're factoring in, does the funding body therefore have to continue paying the full DP on the direct payments end? I think the funding body, if they are to enable the employer to meet their legal obligations, then yes, they do have to keep funding the DPs for the employer to do so. If the funding body decides or doesn't under, maybe doesn't understand and makes the decision to stop the direct payments. I know it happens, particularly sometimes with personal health budgets where there's a kind of concern of double funding. So if somebody's hospitalised, DP stops. That's yeah. the kind of standard model. Um, if there isn't involvement perhaps of somebody in the DP support side who might be raising this or flagging this, you know, that that is, can be problematic. And I think it's I think what we can only do is furnish you with the the, the kind of employment law ramifications of, of stopping the funding what will happen with that in mind occasionally that can happen in in so many different for so many different reasons but the funding will just suddenly and very quickly get pulled and it might well be for reasons as you just said there's some sort of a double funding going on but we need to be impressing how important it is that if we're going to say well actually you know we've got a double funding arrangement some some justification to pull back the um funding be aware that that doesn't mean the employer can suddenly turn off their employment law obligations even if we've got a very valid let's say redundancy an employer has got to go through a fair process there's got to be a consultation there's got to be an agreement with the employee essentially we've got to know that we've gone through a fair process process before that dismissal is absolutely confirmed and on top of that we might have things such as a statutory redundancy payment and a notice period so in a situation where you're talking about a layoff one of the things that might they might well need to consider is well how long is this layoff likely to be 
If we're only talking about four weeks, chances are you are not going to get an employer through in any cost effective way a redundancy situation. Now, if you're talking about a longer period, then absolutely your redundancy might be the way forward. But please keep in mind that a good process has got to be followed. Notice has got to be paid and a statutory redundancy payment might apply as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Rachel. And I think Jenny's got back and thanking us for the answer, and but also suggesting that the new DP agreement where she um, uh, where she's referring to are being asked to sign that says they will not pay after the four weeks, whatever the agreement. So four weeks is quite interesting. And I think more key from listening to you saying and, and you know our response is look at the contract templates people are using. You know, have some look at that. Make sure there is a layoff clause, but also I think um, make it part of the conversation. I think wherever, certainly from my experience, um, a flag early on, being made aware that somebody is hospitalised, particularly if they're on direct payments and are employing PAs, and flagging that issue very, very quickly, but also where possible using contract templates that um, account for it as much as possible. There's another question as well from Lewis uh, about going back to the vaccination. What about the anti-vaccination PAs who refuse to take it and the employer is deeply concerned? So this is a big question, isn't it? And we, we know you're getting lots of inquiries about this. I mean, has the... Has this just sort of maybe tie it into a concise place? Has the situation moved on a pace? I know originally, you know, I kind of touched on what we'd said originally. Have your views changed? Has there been more evidence to suggest, you know, we can go one way or the other? What's your kind of take on that? If you can summarise, I know it's huge and open-ended, but... It really is. We've had, uh, it's been really interesting to actually see the scope of inquiries that we've had when we're talking about vaccinations. Genuinely fascinating um, because it's easy for us to sort of assume that an employer is going to take the position that they, they really need everybody to be vaccinated. And it's really not the case. Some employers have even said, I don't want my PA to be vaccinated because she's just going to swan about town thinking that she can do whatever she likes. She's vaccinated, she's protected, and then she's going to bring it back into my household. So it's really been fascinating to see that employers don't necessarily sit in any one camp as to how important they feel that the vaccination is to protect them. Um, I even spoke to one lady who had uh, was caring for a son who, who himself was suffering with his condition because he'd had a vaccination as a child. So she was very anti-vaccination. Um, really, really fascinating to see the broad scope and genuinely fascinating to see all of the reasons, if you can call it that in some cases. Some, some employees don't even necessarily know why they don't want the vaccination. Um, but definitely this, it's a conspiracy I'm hearing an awful lot. Um, I don't know why. I'm still not sure why. If anybody can tell me what the, the reason is behind this conspiracy theory, I'd, I'd love to hear it. One of my favourites was... Um, a PA believed that they that the government, well, whilst rolling out the vaccinations, were actually putting a chip into your body. So we've got all sorts of, of reasons for it. Interestingly, I actually haven't come across many cases where the PA is refusing it because they are vulnerable themselves or because they're pregnant or because they, they there's a religious belief. It doesn't seem to be something that's actually coming through. So whilst that's our biggest concern, it actually hasn't really impacted me so far in the advice that we're giving so we've had a number of cases where um to be quite honest if i were to generalize the individuals where they are saying it's a conspiracy or they just don't believe in it for some reason they don't have a deeply personal reason beyond 
perhaps what they've read on social media. Largely, they have just been accepting. I know that you're going to want to impose this rule and they leave or they allow the employer to take them through a disciplinary and they go. It's actually been quite... Um, quite easy to see them leave in in the most part now then we have had a couple of cases where we have taken it all the way to disciplinary we have needed because of the employers um, needs in the workplace because of the increased risk of transmission we've seen some employers for example who haven't been able to implement face um, face mask wearing as part of their PPE because um, of the reactions it would get from the individual who who requires the support it's actually you know scares them so it's really not possible for them to have that kind of um, protection in place. It's not a measure that's appropriate in that work. So therefore, we've got a greater justification for any kind of, of transmission reduction that we can possibly implement. So we have had a couple of cases where we've taken it all the way through to dismissal. We haven't had any case law to tell us whether or not these dismissals are fair. We are still in a position where we genuinely do not know. So every case that comes our way, we are having to assess it on its own facts. We want to know that the employer has done that thorough conversation, that the employer has really thoroughly done a risk assessment. So it's not just a generic, yeah, you must do this. And it really hasn't been thought through. Um, consider the, the risk in that individual's area even. Think through how long it is you think it's going to be that you're at an increased risk for. Just, just all of the factors. Absolutely everything should be taken into account. And yeah, we, we certainly have found ourselves going down the road of, of disciplinaries. Um, as far as case law is concerned, it might be interesting to note, we, had, uh, we have had a case lately that tackled, it was the first dismissal really that related to coronavirus connected issues. And it was a chap who has gone into a client's work site. So he's, he's driving a truck, he's gone into a customer's yard to do a collection or delivery and he has refused whilst he's sat in his cab he has refused to wear a mask so the customer has complained and has ref basically referred it back to his employers and he was dismissed for it now we're talking about somebody who's over two years service so a very careful disciplinary uh, proceeded he didn't have any reason for not wearing one there was no sort of uh, he had a, his own sensitivities he just didn't like the fact that he was been told to wear a mask when he was in his cab he was thinking of it as being his own personal space and he was like no you I'm, I'm not following that rules you didn't give me those rules when I came in the gate I'm just not doing it so we got quite stubborn over the over the issue the employers dismissed him and the judgment said that the dismissal was fair it's interesting to note because this is the only case we've had where it's coronavirus reasons that have resulted in the dismissal so it's the only thing we've got to play with now we could potentially argue there is this is him refusing to follow rules this is him being stubborn over health you know sorry health and safety measures but i think largely so far it's more than likely that actually his actions, his conduct that had no justification, that had no proportionality to it, actually interrupted that good relationship between his employers and a very important client of theirs. And it's the effect that his conduct had on that relationship that is probably 
the primary driver in that judgment and truth. So it's not necessarily the most helpful thing um, in terms of us trying to apply that provision to our individual employers. Uh, but still, interesting to see that these cases are going to start coming through. So in six months' time, we may well have some more decisions from tribunals to, to say, well, yes, you know, some of these dismissals may have been fair, some of them may not. We genuinely don't know yet. Brilliant. Thanks, Rachel. We'll, be, we'll certainly be looking at it. And if there's anything that's relevant, that's the sort of thing, I guess, with ILG and support, our newsletters, bulletins, and of course, the podcast we're talking about, and perhaps even Q&As and, and, and events like this that we'll, we'll be keen to come and talk to you about, because, uh, yeah, we like to talk about it, so we would like to share it. Um, we've had another question, Rachel, um, from actually somebody who's down his iPhone, so I don't know who they are, but they say they have a PA who works term time with this person's daughter, um, the schools, because schools have been closed, um, the PA struggled childcare and they're asking, are they being reasonable by coming up with an arranged agreement between the employer and the PA that they still get paid their full wage? I would say yes. My reading of the question. I would say yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not going to want to lose this worker. It would seem a shame. And this is where I have to refer to the job retention scheme. That's what the whole purpose of it, as you said at the beginning, David, that the job retention scheme is there to protect jobs, to protect redundancies from happening. So, yes, rather than let go of this person, if it's possible to have an arrangement where they are essentially furloughed and there is some payment, yes, it would seem reasonable under those circumstances. Brilliant. Thank you. And that, I think, is the questions. That's certainly the questions on the chat. So if there are any other questions, please do um, pop them into the chat box now and we'll answer them for you. Um, what I will do just now is I'm just going to pop in an email address there, support at independentlivinggroup.com. So just to remind you, the ILG, what is the Independent Living Group? It sits alongside Mark Bates Limited and it's kind of where we're sitting uh, and seating the direct payment employment individual employer information. So ILG support, our legal advice service headed up by Rachel, is part of that kind of group. And we have just launched ILG Academy, which is some e-learning courses for MBL policyholders. So all of our training, all of our information about individual employers, it's all coming through this kind of ILG part of the business, this new kind of part of the business, which is, is really exciting. So if you have questions after today, if you do have topics perhaps you'd like to hear us talk about, um, as I mentioned, we're doing these podcasts starting in April. I can't remember, Rachel, I haven't got the list in front of me. Did we say Tupi was going to be the first one? Did we say Tupi? I can't remember what we said was going to be the first one. Tupi employment status, wasn't it, I think. And these are the big issues, aren't they? These are the things I know. Yes, the hot topics, the hot topics, the ones that are just you know, so relevant to our direct payment employers, to, to this particular field. Things that, you know, challenges on a regular basis, the Tupi transfers, the living care arrangements and, and getting adequate rest breaks and, and the still awaiting and pending judgment from the Supreme Court on sleepovers. Yeah, and also... And what, mean oh yeah the hot topics yeah. i'm really looking forward to and also the the um uber case recently and what does that mean and ir35 what are these impacts so we're going to be looking at it and what i mean basically to really play it down rachel and i and and miles and others and the owner we'll, we'll be talking about this stuff 
anyway, quite passionately, probably. So what what EIG enables us to do is just share that with you, really, and get that out there. And I think, you know, like you, we support individual employers, albeit on a specific area around their employer issues. So we, you know, we have that as a kind of just a well of information coming in. And we're just using that and sharing it with you is really what we're all about and trying to make sure that the service is as good as it can be, that we're using that information feeding it back that we're all kind of contributing to this kind of pool of what hopefully is useful reflections on what's happening out there because it's relevant to all of us. So that's that's really the idea. So we'll do more of these Q&As, whether we call them a webinar Q&A or surgery or whatever we call them. We're keen to do more, but please do email us at the support at independentlivinggroup.com email address with ideas, questions, feedback, good or bad, um, stuff you'd like to, to be covered um, and we'll cover it. I mean, there's issues around, We met, you mentioned tribunal judgments. We had, there's a very interesting tribunal, tribunal judgment we came aware of. I think it's about 18 months old now, but it's talking about uh, an individual employer on direct payments who lack capacity. Um, and in that case, I think a family member was set up as the kind of employer on paper, didn't really have any involvement. There was a managed account provider doing the, the, the kind of payroll and managed and managing the money um, and the local authority was found liable in that case so it's a really interesting little window into how you know when the kind of direct payment social care legislation butts up against employment law how we don't have a huge amount of case law on that so we, we have a bit now it's those kind of issues we, we we as i say we talk about anyway and we want to share and talk about them and engage with you guys on so um hopefully you'll kind of come along with us as we do that and so look out for our newsletters we'll be host we'll be posting stuff on the independent living group website so recordings of webinars and podcasts any relevant information newsletters will be on there so you know get yourself involved there it's um it's it's something we're developing and quite proud of and we're keen to share with you so please get stuck in um rachel is there any other we've got about five minutes left um and i think there aren't any unless there are any questions people please do put Put your questions in the chat box. Are there other reflections that you that you'd care to make before we kind of sign off this session? No, I don't think so. I think um, or, it's a really interesting place. I mean, and, and I suppose it just rides on the back of what you just said, actually, David. Is that what we find is that from from the advice team, we have a really intensive look at what where things can go wrong for direct payment employers and we see the problems hitting us all the time and i think from the point of view as an advisor it's wonderful that we're able to have some sort of an avenue to be able to help people through those matters on a case-by-case basis but also what you often see is that well you can perhaps see where things might go wrong at policy level i see for example the whole sleepover arrangement and how the law fluctuated on that um you know, the case law developed in one direction, but actually different local authorities, different funding bodies across the UK all had a different approach to how they were going to apply it, whether they applied it. And even now it's still very distinctly different. So we react on a case by case basis. Each time a call comes into the helpline and we have this intensive view of where things are going wrong. So I really love the fact that we have an opportunity if people wish to engage in the conversation with us to actually say, look, this is a problem. And this is what you need to know about the law. And this is actually a way in which that we can collectively fix this problem, maybe, and and maybe do something proactive to stop the problems from hitting us in the first place. Not that we're not willing to help on when those cases go wrong, but we would really like to see that we can 
make a difference to the way the system is operating. And we just want to, like you say, David, we want to get that information out there so people are aware, share our knowledge, share our experience of where things have gone wrong and help everybody to perhaps put things right before they get themselves in a pickle. Yeah, and, that, you know, bold aims, but why not? I think that's what we're here for. Something, as I say, we've discussed a lot. And I know there are people on the call who we've spoke to, you know, just in the last week or two where we've talked and get, we have been getting involved in case discussions. And, and one of the, one of the, you know, we talked here about the pandemic, but one of the, the great, I guess, byproducts and, and, and something that I hope remains is, is our ability now and our willingness to utilise technology. So, you know, it's it, what would have been a, an awkward kind of phone call in the past. Now we're all quite familiar with teams. We can do that. We can have a chat with a practitioner, with a DP lead, with us, with whoever needs to be in the room. And actually that that is a big step forward that enables us to be, you know, quite innovative about getting things done and do get in touch with us for that because, you know, we want to do more of that. It's something that the ILG has, you know, is keen to, to get involved with and it's an offshoot of, you know, what we do in our day job, which is, it, which is ensure, you know, 50,000 plus direct payment recipients. Um, but we do care and we, and we are picking it up and it's not disposable to us. It's something that feeds into something yeah. bigger and we're keen to, really, really keen to build on that with you all really. So, um, so yeah, um, that's, that's basically where we're at and that takes us to 10.57. So we're close to 11 o'clock and I think what we might do is end it there. But thank you all very much. Thank you, Karen, for your message there. And um, yeah, we'll, um, we'll keep, keep in touch please do feedback today Rachel thank you so much as always it's been brilliant Fiona thank you as well for keeping the track on uh, all of the uh, chat and everything else um, so yeah I think that's us we'll, we'll sign off now and um, yeah thank you all take care thank you